This is the third presentation in our Joseph K. McLaughlin lecture series. Um, Joe, uh, we always take pride at the beginning of these presentations in remembering Joe, his friendship to Cato, uh, his accomplishments, and the, uh, the range of his intellectual interests and pursuits. And in fact, the, uh, the breadth of speakers and topics that we cover in this series is intended to mirror uh, the, the range of, uh, of Joe's intellectual interests as well. Joe was a world-renowned cancer epidemiologist, but his interests went far beyond science and medicine. Uh, he had a range of interests from economics to anthropology to cinema. I was told that he had a library numbering in the thousands and thousands of volumes, and unlike most of us, or I'll speak for myself, unlike one of us, Joe actually read all the books that he owned. I uh, met Joe only once. I was invited to a luncheon here at Cato, uh, and uh, I was uh, a Cato sponsor at the time, not yet an employee. Uh, I didn't know when I became an employee that they weren't gonna stop letting me write checks, so I remain a Cato sponsor. And uh, I do wanna take a moment to thank all of our supporters who are here with us tonight because you truly make our work possible. But I was invited to this lunch. The only time I met Joe, he, uh, he passed away on an untimely basis only a few weeks later. Uh, but somehow it's appropriate that I met him at that event because the speaker that day had a, a range of, uh, of expertise that I thought was, was pretty stunning. Um, he had given a presentation in this room and then we broke for a, for a smaller luncheon discussion that was not centered on the topic of his, the, the presentation, but rather we went around the table and people were able to ask questions on a full range of topics. And I was just incredibly impressed with this presenter's ability to, uh, to field each of these questions like a true expert and offer an answer that had a very, um, very impressive depth of, uh, of knowledge and understanding. And in some ways, I believe that speaker's range of, of intellect uh, mirrored Joe's own. And uh, it's doubly appropriate uh, tonight because that speaker was Steven Pinker, uh, who was presenting that day on, uh, on pessimism. And uh, there were uh, some parallels, I think, between Joe's experience and, and Steven's. Um, so it's a real pleasure for Dr. Pinker to, uh, to be with us tonight. Uh, as Jerry Seinfeld once say, said, it's incredible that no matter what different things happen on any given day and how many uh, events occur, uh, the summary of them always seems to fit in exactly one newspaper. <laughs> but it's also interesting that everything that appears in the newspaper, coincidentally, it's always bad news. Drought, famine, political crisis. In fact, using the word crisis, I think Steven Pinker himself has noted that editors and journalists have stopped using the phrase crisis and now they sometimes use the redundant serious crisis <laughs> just to, uh, to let us know that this news is, is really bad, which uh, this is a complete aside, but reminds me of what uh, Thomas Sowell once said when he was giving a glossary and he said, innovation is something new. 
new innovation is something new by someone who doesn't speak English. <laughs> but despite what appears in the paper, uh, if you look around and you actually think, look, at, look at the data, around the world, humans are becoming safer, healthier, and wealthier by the day. Steven Pinker's latest book, which he is here to discuss with us, is entitled Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. In the book, he writes what he calls the greatest story, he writes about what he calls the greatest story seldom told, that the Enlightenment has worked. The great ideals of the Enlightenment, reason, science, humanism, and progress, have helped abolish slavery and tyranny, have made scarcity and disease the exception rather than the rule, uh, have resulted in global trends that uh, show us that life expectancy has increased, child and maternal mortality have declined, the recurrence of famines has declined, the reduction of extreme poverty, decreasing pollution and deforestation, and the worldwide increase in democracy and human rights. In the book, Dr. Pinker illustrates these trends in 75 very interesting and compelling charts. And if we want to continue living in the free and prosperous society that the Enlightenment values have created for us and spread that freedom and prosperity even further, we have to defend the Enlightenment and tell its story. And we have to fight against the psychological prejudices that were the topic of the presentation by Dr. Pinker that, that I attended, um, that tell us that things are always getting worse or that we need a strong leader or government to fix things. As Dr. Pinker writes, we ignore the achievements of the Enlightenment at our peril. Steven Pinker is one of the country's most well-known academics and the author of multiple best-selling books. My personal favorite is The Better Angels of Our, Our Nature. My colleague, Cato Executive Vice President David Bowes, I think his least favorite is The Sense of Style, The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century, because David uh, once got a note or received something work product passed up the line by a Cato, young Cato editor who had written the phrase, quote, between you and I, unquote. And David said, this is supposed to be between you and me, to which the editor replied, Steven Pinker says it's optional. <laughs> to which David Bowes replied, if that's what Steven Th Pinker thinks, then Steven Pinker is dead to me. <laughs> An expert on language and cognition, Dr. Pinker is the Johnstone family professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. He's been named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People, has been a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, and is an elected member of the National Academy of Sciences, among many other awards and accomplishments. We are most proud here at Cato of his association with our web platform, humanprogress.org, which he serves as a board member. The purpose of that project is to correct the wide gap between reality and public perception when it comes to human well-being. At humanprogress.org, we collect and visualize the vast data that show, as Dr. Pinker relates in his book, how the world keeps getting better, not worse. But again, it's not enough just to observe the world's getting better. We must also defend the ideas that made the world better. The Ideas of the Enlightenment, which Dr. Pinker so eloquently explains and defends in his new book. 
Please join me in giving a warm welcome to the podium to Dr. Steven Pinker. Thank you. From time to time, we all ask some deep and difficult questions. Why is the world filled with woe? How can we make it better? How do we give meaning and purpose to our lives? Well, as difficult and deep as these questions are, many people have ready answers to these questions. Such as, uh, morality is dictated by God and holy scriptures. When everyone obeys his laws, the world will be perfect. Such as, problems are the fault of evil people who must be shamed, punished, and defeated. Such as, our tribe should claim its rightful greatness under the control of a strong leader who embodies its authentic virtue. Or, in the past, we lived in a state of order and harmony until alien forces brought on decadence and degeneration. We must restore the society to its golden age. Well, what about the rest of us? Uh, many of us are pretty clear on what we don't believe in, but it's harder to articulate a positive vision of what we do believe in. In Enlightenment Now, I suggest that there uh, is such a positive a vision, an alternative system of beliefs and values, namely the ones originated by the Enlightenment of the second half of the 18th century. In a nutshell, that we can use knowledge to enhance human flourishing. Many people embrace the ideals of the Enlightenment without being able to name or describe them. They're like the Moliere character who was delighted to discover that he'd been speaking prose all his life. <laughs> As a result, they've faded into the background as uh, the status quo or the establishment. Other ideologies have passionate advocates, and I suggest that Enlightenment ideals, too, need a positive defense and an explicit commitment. The Enlightenment, I suggest, centers on four themes, reason, science, humanism, and progress. Let me say a few words about each. It all begins with reason. With the realization that traditional sources of belief are generators of delusion. Faith, revelation, tradition, authority, charisma, mysticism, intuition, the hermeneutic parsing of sacred texts are all ways of being wrong. Reason, in contrast, is non-negotiable. As soon as you try to provide reasons why we should trust anything other than reason, as soon as you insist that you're right, that other people should believe you, that you're not lying, or full of crap, you've lost the argument because you have appealed to reason. Now, human beings on their own are not particularly reasonable. My fellow cognitive psychologists have amply demonstrated that we are liable to generalize from anecdotes, to reason from stereotypes, to seek evidence that confirms our beliefs and to ignore evidence that disconfirms them, and that we're overconfident about our knowledge, our wisdom, and our rectitude. But people are capable of reason if they establish certain norms and institutions. Free speech, open criticism and debate, logical analysis, fact-checking, and empirical testing. Which brings me to the second Enlightenment ideal, science. Science is based on the conviction that the world is intelligible, that we can understand it by formulating possible explanations and testing them against reality. Science has shown itself to be our most reliable means of understanding the world. 
including ourselves. An important theme of the Enlightenment thinkers is that there can be a science of human nature and that beliefs about society are testable, just like other beliefs about the world. Science provides not just technical know-how, but fundamental insights about the human condition. Naturalism, the universe has no goal or purpose related to human welfare, with the crucial implication that if we want to improve that welfare, we have to figure out how to do it ourselves. Entropy, in a closed system without input of energy, disorder increases. Things fall apart, stuff happens, because there are vastly more ways for things to go wrong than to go right. Evolution, humans are products of a competitive process which selects for reproductive success, not for well-being. As Immanuel Kant put it, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no truly straight thing can be built. The third Enlightenment theme I suggest is humanism, that the ultimate moral purpose is to reduce the suffering and enhance the flourishing of human beings and other sentient creatures. Well, who could be against human flourishing, you might ask? Isn't this uh, obvious and unexceptionable? Well, not exactly. There are distinct alternatives to humanism, such as that the ultimate good is to enhance the glory of the tribe, nation, race, class, or faith, to obey the dictates of a divinity and pressure others to do the same, to achieve feats of heroic greatness, or to advance some mystical force, dialectic struggle, or pursuit of a utopian or messianic age. Humanism is feasible because people are endowed with a sense of sympathy, a concern with the welfare of others. By default, our circle of sympathy is rather small. We tend to feel the pain and enjoy the flourishing of our genetic relatives, our uh, close friends and allies, cute little furry baby animals, uh, and that's about it. But our circle of sympathy can be expanded through the forces of cosmopolitanism, the mixing of people and ideas, including education, journalism, art, mobility, and reason. I can't insist that my interests alone deserve to be respected just because I'm me and you're not and hope for you to take me seriously. Uh, finally, <clears throat> um, all of these together lead us to the ideal of progress that if we apply knowledge and sympathy to reduce suffering and enhance flourishing, we can gradually <clears throat> succeed. Well, if human nature doesn't change, you might ask, how is progress possible? And an answer from the Enlightenment is through benign norms and institutions, which allow us to deploy energy and knowledge to combat entropy, to magnify the better angels of our nature, like reason and sympathy, while marginalizing our inner demons, our illusions, our biases, our tribalism, our uh, thirst for dominance and vengeance. Examples of Enlightenment institutions include democracy, declarations of rights, markets, organizations for global cooperation, and institutions of truth-seeking, academies, scientific societies, uh, a free press, and many others. So how did that Enlightenment thing work out? Well, if you ask most intellectuals, the answer is not very well, because I have found that uh, most intellectuals hate progress, and intellectuals who call themselves progressive really hate progress. <laughs> Now, particularly in this forum, I have to 
call attention to a notable exception that among the various political camps, it is the libertarians uh, among whom one can find the, the uh, deepest commitment to progress, including several people affiliated with this organization, Marianne Tupi, John Mueller, I think that Ron Bailey is, uh, is also here. And um, it's actually an open question why it should be libertarians who are um, willing to commit themselves to the existence of progress. Particularly since by some criteria, we're living in a libertarian dystopia, but uh, that we can leave that as a, a, a question to be, that we can discuss later. But for most other intellectuals, uh, I have learned, if you think that we can solve problems, then that means that you have a blind faith and a quasi-religious belief in the outmoded superstition and the false promise of the myth of the onward march of inevitable progress. <laughs> you are a cheerleader for vulgar American can-do-ism with the rah-rah spirit of boardroom ideology, Silicon Valley, and the Chamber of Commerce. You are a practitioner of Whig history, a naive optimist, a Pollyanna, and of course a Pangloss, an allusion to the Voltaire character who declared uh, all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Now, as it happens, Pangloss was a pessimist. A true optimist believes that this is not the best of all possible worlds, that their possible world is much better than the one that we live in uh, now. But uh, all of this is irrelevant because the question of whether progress has taken place is, uh, should not be a matter of uh, temperament or faith or seeing the glass half full or rose-colored glasses or uh, a sunny disposition, but an empirical hypothesis. Human well-being can be measured. Life, health, sustenance, prosperity, peace, freedom, safety, knowledge, leisure, happiness. If they have increased over time, I submit, that is progress. Well, let's go to the data. Beginning with the most precious uh, commodity of all, uh, life. For most of human history, life expectancy at birth was around uh, 30 years. But with the advent of uh, vaccination, sanitation, antibiotics, and other advances in public health and medicine, life expectancy across the world has increased to 71 years, and virtually no one guesses that it is that high. The advance in life expectancy follows a pattern that one sees over and over again in considering human uh, progress, and namely that progress has been, uh, in, uh, in the past, highly uneven. Basically, 200, 250 years ago, everyone lived in wretchedness and squalor. Uh, the first regions to make the great escape from university, universal poverty, as Angus Deaton has called it, were uh, Europe and the Americas. But more recently, Asia has seen spectacular increases, and Africa as well is catching up, as we see here, for uh, life expectancy. For most of human history, the major uh, reason that life uh, expectancy was uh, uh, truncated is child mortality, the death of children before the age of five. Even in a country that we think of today as the most advanced in the world, Sweden, uh, in 1750, one-third of children did not make it to their fifth birthday. Uh, over the uh, next couple of years, that went from 33% to uh, one-third of 1%, one per a hundredfold decrease, uh, a trajectory that was then replicated by a, a typical North American country, Canada, an Asian country, South Korea, a Latin American country, Chile, 
and uh, more, most recently in sub-Saharan Africa, countries like Ethiopia have seen a steep decline from 25% uh, to just 6%. Still too high, but the progress continues. In the 18th century, 1% of mothers in Sweden did uh, succumbed in uh, childbirth. That was, has been brought down by a factor of 250. Uh, similar progress then made in the United States, Malaysia, and uh, Ethiopia. So from 1% in the of maternal mortality in the world's richest country, we are now, now see a rate of a third of a percentage point in the world's poorest country. Health. For much of human history, the um, main a uh, force that uh, led to early death was infectious disease, a problem that has, is mostly eliminated from the developed world. And even in the developing world, there's recently been a considerable progress in uh, eliminating deaths from uh, uh, pathogens and parasites. Here you see just in the last uh, 20 years, the decline in the rate of death of children from pneumonia, diarrhea, malaria, measles, and HIV AIDS. Sustenance. It takes about um, 2,500 calories to uh, sustain a, uh, 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 an adult male. Uh, with the uh, agricultural revolution in Britain in the second half of the 18th century, uh, England d uh, grew enough calories to sustain its population, thanks to advances in uh, crop rotation, in uh, later in synthetic fertilizers, in the mechanization of agriculture, in selective breeding for vigorous hybrids, uh, a path that then was under, um, undergone by the United States, France, and here we see China, India, and the entire world uh, developing the ability to feed itself. Now, the abundance of calories could be considered a dubious form of progress if it simply made the fat fatter, but in fact, the benefits have accrued to the bottom uh, of the uh, scale as well. In 1970, about 35% of the world's population was uh, subject to undernourishment. That has been brought down to um, about 12% of the, of the developing world. It, the uh, progress in reducing undernourishment first took place in the developing world in Latin America, then in uh, East Asia, and once again, Sub-Saharan Africa seems to be on the uh, same trajectory. And at the, in the worst consequences of insufficient calories of all, famine, the, one of the horsemen of the apocalypse, a uh, catastrophe that could strike any continent at, at any time, the number of famine deaths in the last 150 years has plummeted, and famines now take place only in the most remote and war-torn regions. Prosperity. For most of human history, economic growth was uh, pretty close to zero. There would be uh, occasional uh, blips and upticks, but no real sustained economic growth. Until the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century, with the application of technology, the spread of education, the uh, institutionalization of markets and finance and global trade, the gross world product has increased by a factor of about 200 since the 19th century. Again, the progress was highly uneven. Uh, it was the UK and the US that first made the great escape from universal poverty. But more recently, we see spectacular progress in uh, Asia, in Latin America, 
and we're just starting to see it in China and India. And uh, here you have the growth of uh, prosperity in the world as a whole. Again, one could argue that this may not be uh, cause for celebration if it just made the very richest uh, richer yet again. But in fact, the benefits of uh, economic growth recently have decimated the rate of extreme poverty. For uh, 200 years ago, 90% uh, of the world's population met the criterion of what we would now call extreme poverty, namely the bare minimum necessary to feed oneself and one's family. But uh, over the course of the last 200 years, the rate of extreme poverty has fallen from 90% to less than 10%. And uh, there have been a three-quarters reduction in extreme poverty just in the last 30 years. Uh, as a result, international inequality has been uh, decreasing. Although with the uh, advent of the Industrial Revolution, uh, oops, not showing up here, uh, there was bound to be uh, an increase in inequality when everyone had uh, nothing, everyone uh, was equal, when with the Industrial Revolution, urban areas in particular started to uh, increase in affluence. Uh, those people pulled away, leaving behind uh, the farmers in rural poverty and necessarily expanding inequality. But more recently, with uh, the fact that the poor countries of the world are getting richer faster than the rich countries of the world, the international uh, Gini index has been decreasing. Now, of course, within uh, rich countries, particularly in the Anglosphere, inequality has been uh, notoriously increasing. But uh, that doesn't mean that uh, the rich countries have become stingier and more callous when it comes to uh, their disadvantaged members. In, uh, for most of European history, wealthy countries devoted at most 1.5% of their gross domestic product to social transfers to the poor, to children, to the sick, to the elderly. But over the course of the 20th century, every advanced country uh, has reallocated a uh, large chunk of its GDP to social spending. Uh, the median among OECD countries today is 22%. And depending on how you look at it, that may or may not be considered to be the, uh, the, the libertarian dystopia that I uh, 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 jokingly alluded to. Uh, thanks to, uh, in uh, good part, to the, this increase in social spending, while inequality has increased in the U.S., poverty uh, has not, on the contrary. In 1960, the uh, rate of poverty, if it measured uh, in terms of disposable income, that is, after taxes and transfers, was about uh, 32%. Uh, um, that has uh, decreased to uh, 7% when measured in terms of disposable income. And when measured in terms of uh, consumption, what people can afford to, to buy, the poverty rate by one definition has fallen from 30% to just 3%. And I'll um, add, uh, I'll, I'll mention a slide that I added for the presentation to this audience about the effects of um, social transfers. This is from the economist uh, Leandro Prados de, de la Escosura, which looks at a, an index of overall society, societal well-being, a composite of uh, prosperity, education, and uh, longevity. You can think of it as being healthy, wealthy, and wise. And uh, Prados de, de la Escosura argues that there is an optimal amount of um, social spending by governments, that um, 
The best fitting curve, as you can see, is, uh, has a maximum. It increases and then bends over. And about 25% of GDP, uh, at least by this rough uh, regression analysis, seems to maximize overall society well-being. More than that, and uh, the well-being starts to decline a bit. Peace. For most of human history, uh, war was the natural state of relations between major states and uh, empires, and peace was a mere interlude between wars. We can see this, that in a graph that plots the percentage of years that the great powers of the day, the 800-pound uh, gorillas, the states and empires that could project military force beyond their borders, were at war with each other uh, in what we might even call world wars. And what it shows is that uh, several hundred years ago, the great powers were pretty much always at war. More recently, they have almost never been at war. The last great power war pitted the United States against China uh, more than uh, 60 years ago. If we zoom in on the 20th century, we see that the decreased rate of war does mask two uh, rather horrific spikes of bloodletting corresponding to the two uh, world wars. But contrary to predictions that many of us grew up with, namely that World War III pitting the Soviet Union against the United States was inevitable, it was just a matter of time, and because it would be a nuclear war, it would have an even more extreme rate of death, the Soviet Union went out of existence and World War III never happened. If we now zoom in just on the post-war period, we see that there has been a, an uneven but a fairly dramatic uh, decline in the rate of deaths from all wars put together, including uh, civil wars and wars between not so great powers, from more than 20 per 100,000 per year uh, in the era of the Korean War to um, about uh, eight or nine during the Vietnam War, around five during the Iran-Iraq War, down to 1.5 during, and now uh, 1.2 uh, because of the Syrian Civil War. So even with the worst war in a generation, the Syrian Civil War, the global rate of death from war is a fraction of what it was in earlier decades. Freedom and rights. We are all acutely aware of some of the backsliding from democracy in the Soviet Union, in Venezuela, in Turkey, uh, most recently in China. But this shouldn't obscure from us the fact that the overwhelming trend over the last two centuries is for democracy to increase. This is a composite um, index of the relative uh, rate of democracy versus autocracy across the world's nations. And what we see is that um, 200 years ago, there were just a handful of countries that were democratic, uh, comprising about 1% of the world's population. As recently as 1971, the world had only 31 democracies. Half of Europe was behind the uh, Iron Curtain, living under uh, uh, communist totalitarian rule. Spain and Portugal were fascist dictatorships, quite literally. Greece was under the control of, a, uh, of the colonels, a military junta. Most of Latin America was under the control of military governments, what, we, what used to be called banana republics. South Korea, Taiwan, military dictatorships. Then by 1989, the world had 52 democracies. By 2009, the first year of the Obama presidency, 87. By the end of the Obama uh, presidency, the total had risen to 103, 
comprising about 56% of the world's population. And so uh, we're living in an era still where a majority of the world's population lives in countries that are more democratic than not, and a majority of countries are more democratic than not. Again, this is we're aware of the pressure against that, but we shouldn't uh, lose sight of the spectacular progress that's been made just in the last um, 35 years. The power of governments to brutalize uh, their citizens has also been curtailed. Uh, every country almost used to have the uh, capital punishment, and it was often applied to trivial crimes and misdemeanors like, uh, like poaching and um, counterfeiting, often in grisly, protracted torture executions. But beginning with the Enlightenment, uh, countries started to abolish capital punishment, a process that accelerated in the last 35 years. Uh, in the last three decades, there have been about three abolitions a year. And if current trends continue, which is not, not to say that they will, then capital punishment will vanish from the face of the earth by the year 2026. Similarly, uh, homosexuality, which was once a crime in a majority of countries, is being abolished in country after country, uh, based uh, in part on a shift of um, morality from one based on religious doctrine to one based on human well-being. Child labor. In 1850, about 30% of British children were at work in farms and factories, and uh, that fell both in England and the United States to uh, the single digits. Uh, Italy went through a similar transition. These were pushed by the rise of affluence, of premium placed on education, and in general, evaluation of the lives of children. More recently, this has been spreading to the world as a whole. Uh, three years ago, Kailash Satyarthi won the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts to, uh, uh, to uh, reduce rates of um, child labor worldwide with uh, considerable success. Uh, the world has gone from about 30% of children work at work in uh, 1950 to just 10% today. Violent crime. In uh, many parts of Europe, homicide statistics go back literally uh, 800 years. And uh, in the medieval patchwork of baronies and principalities and uh, duchies, there was no consistent rule of law, and homicide rates were about 35 per 100,000 per year. Then with the spread of consolidated kingdoms in Europe, in particularly England, and uh, the low countries, that rate eventually was brought down from 35 to 1. Uh, a similar trajectory was uh, enjoyed by Italy. And this process tends to happen whenever frontier regions are brought under the rule of law. And uh, anarchy and a code of uh, vendetta and blood feud are replaced by the rule of law and a criminal justice system. The uh, same uh, historical sequence took place in New England as the frontier came under control. Later by the, uh, in the Southwest US, the so-called Wild West, immortalized in the cowboy movies, when the sheriff came to town, the rate of uh, violence really did go down. And even in parts of the world that are, remain violent today, that are notorious for their high rates of violence, uh, such as Mexico, the rate was as much as, uh, was three to four times higher just several decades ago. We, zoom in on the last 50 years, we see that the United States, which underwent uh, something of a crime boom in the 1960s, and which uh, is, does have a uh, um, 
high rate of violent crime compared to other Western democracies. In this, and I have to add many other measures, the United States is a bit of an outlier when it comes to Western democracies. We, we punch below our wealth in many indices of human well-being. But even in the United States, the rate of violent crime has been cut in half since 1992. And indeed, for the world as a whole, there's been about a 30% reduction in the rate of homicide just in the last two decades. It's not just homicide that has been in decline, but uh, domestic violence, violence against wives and girlfriends, and rates of rape and sexual assault have fallen by 75% since records were first kept in the early 1970s. Victimization of children has been in decline, violent victimization at school, including bullying, uh, rates of physical abuse and sexual abuse by caregivers. In fact, we've been getting safer in just about every way, um, thanks to better safety technology in cars, um, better engineered roads, and uh, safe, uh, better enforcement of traffic laws and uh, increased regulations on uh, safety measures in cars. The rate of death in motor vehicle accidents has fallen by 96%. Uh, in a century. In the past century, we're also 88% less likely to be mowed down on the sidewalk, 99% less likely to die in a plane crash, 59% less likely to fall to our deaths, 90% less likely to drown, 92% less likely to uh, be burned to death, 92% less likely to be asphyxiated. But there is one counterexample to the trend of increasing safety, shown in this graph, which plots the category of accidental death called poison by uh, solid or liquid. When I first plotted these data, I wondered why Americans seem to be all of a sudden drinking bleach or eating uh, roach powder. But it turns out that this is the category that includes uh, accidental drug overdoses. And what we're seeing here is the uh, opioid epidemic, a counterexample, certainly a pretty salient counterexample to uh, the progress of recent decades. Still, we're 95% less likely to be killed on the job. We are far less likely to be done in by the proverbial acts of God, the droughts, floods, wildfires, storms, volcanoes, landslides, heat waves, cold snaps, meteor strikes, and earthquakes, thanks to stronger infrastructure, better early warning systems, and better uh, uh, rescue systems. Uh, about 89% less likely to die since records were first kept. And what about the quintessential act of God? Uh, everyone's favorite metaphor for an unpredictable date with death, the literal bolt from the blue. Well, yes, we are 97% less likely to be killed by a bolt of lightning compared, compared to a, uh, a century ago. Knowledge. In most of European history, no more than 15% of the population could read and write. Uh, the Western Europe, um, the Netherlands, and the and, uh, UK achieved universal literacy by the middle of the 20th century. Germany, a bit later. Uh, Italy, still later. Uh, the United States had a similar trajectory. Uh, Latin America, and here we see uh, Mexico and a graph for the entire world. So today, uh, 80% of the world is literate, and more than 90% of people under the age of 25. Not just boys, but girls. In 1750, only about six girls could read or write for every 10 boys. And then uh, by the uh, turn of the 20th century, that reached gender parity. That is true for the world as a whole, <coughs> minus a couple of 
uh, backward regions, but even in those, we see in Pakistan and in Afghanistan, there have been uh, big increases in the rate of female literacy compared to male, male literacy. And in what many people find the most uh, incredible example of progress at all, one that truly defies belief, uh, we have been getting smarter. In a phenomenon known as the Flynn effect, um, robustly demonstrated, replicated in data set after data set, IQ scores have been increasing by three points a decade for uh, the most of the 20th century, uh, mostly a gift of education, partly of health, and of the trickling down of abstract concepts and symbols from technical uh, walks of life and science to the population as a whole. Well, do any of these gains actually improve our lives? <clears throat> well, the answer is, is uh, uh, definitely yes. If you take just one example, in 1870, the average work week in the U Western Europe and the US was more than 60 hours, as uh, you might recall from uh, uh, Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Over the, the uh, course of 140 years, both in Western Europe and the US, we work 22 fewer hours a week, and a majority of people have uh, three weeks of paid vacation, something that would have been inconceivable uh, 100 years ago. And uh, thanks to the penetration of running water, electricity, washing machines, vacuum cleaners, refrigerators, dishwashers, stoves, and microwave ovens, the amount of our lives that we lose to housework, which surveys show to be the least favorite way for people to spend their time, has gone from uh, more than uh, 60 hours a week to uh, less than 15. That is, uh, our great-grandmothers spent eight hours a day on housework, housework and that has fallen to uh, two. And when I say we, uh, what I really am referring to is, um, by and large, women, because housework was, and to a large extent continues to be, uh, highly gendered. Because of the shortening of the work week and the lessening of uh, the demands of housework, the amount of leisure time that we enjoy has uh, gone up by eight hours a week just in the last 50 years. The uh, advance was uh, leveled off after 1995 among women. And I was uh, once again puzzled by this um, dip and decline. And uh, when I read the fine print, the answer is that women today spend more time with their children. In fact, a uh, single working woman today spends more time with her children than a married stay-at-home mom in the 1950s. So forget Leave it to Beaver. We, um, in, uh, a century ago or so, we spent 60% of our paycheck on necessities. That has fallen to uh, less than a third today. You might ask now, do any of these uh, quantifiable advances make us any happier? Uh, and the answer is yes. That in, according to the World Values Survey, which has uh, kept measures of uh, self-rated happiness in more than 50 countries. In 45 out of uh, 52 countries, that is 86%, happiness has uh, increased in the last 35 years. Uh, a lot of that is due to rising affluence. Here we have a regression line for the mean level of life satisfaction in a country as a function of the log of its GDP per capita, which means that the actual curve bends over. It takes more and more money for rich countries to raise their citizens' level by an equivalent amount of happiness. Here you have the individual countries 
represented by dots and the relationship of well, subjective well-being to, uh, to income plotted uh, within each country by an arrow impaling the dot. So what it shows is that richer people within a country are happier, richer countries are happier, with the implication that as countries get richer, they, uh, they get happier. Has this come at the expense of the environment? Is it sustainable? Well, the answer is that in the past, it, much of this progress did come at the expense of the environment. But uh, the environment, thanks to uh, environmental regulations, energy efficiency, advances in uh, pollution control technology, the environment is starting to rebound. And indeed, in 178 out of 180 countries, the state of the environment is better now than it was uh, several decades ago. This includes the United States, where since 1970, the kind of a benchmark of the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency, our population has increased by 40%. We are uh, GDP by uh, a factor of two and a half. We drive uh, twice as many miles. We have consumed more energy, although that has started to level off, and emitted more CO2, although that's starting to uh, bend over. But at the same time, the uh, five major air pollutants have declined by 60%, and depending on the pollutant, it's anywhere from 50% uh, to greater, more than 80% reduction. So the idea that is uh, popular both among the hard green left and the hard right that you have to choose between economic growth and environmental protection. If you have environmental regulations, the, the economy can't grow, or if you want to protect the environment, you should prevent the economy from growing, uh, are false. Uh, what this graph shows is that you can have considerable economic growth and increased protection of the environment uh, at the same time. Uh, particular measures of environmental quality have also shown uh, some improvement. Uh, deforestation in the temperate world has fallen to zero as farms have been abandoned and reclaimed by forest and new forests aren't being cut down for uh, farmland. In, uh, among tropical forests, the, um, there is still an alarming amount of deforestation, but the worst years seem to be behind us, 1975, and there's been a uh, pretty dramatic decline in the rate of tropical deforestation since then. Over the last uh, 40 years or so, uh, the world has shipped twice as much oil by sea, but has had 85% fewer oil spills. And the amount of the Earth's surface that's been protected against uh, economic exploitation has uh, almost doubled from 8% to 15%, and the uh, uh, amount of uh, marine area has gone, protected has gone from 6% to 12%. Well, I hope that I've convinced you that uh, progress is a, is a fact. It's not a matter of having a sunny disposition, but it can be seen in the numbers. So how is the fact of human progress reflected in the news? Well, uh, a technique known as sentiment mapping tallies the proportion of words with a positive connotation, like uh, improvement, better, to words of a negative connotation, like crisis and uh, worse. And uh, since 1945, the New York Times has gotten glummer and glummer. Uh, and it's not just the New York Times, but the, uh, a sample of the world's broadcasts have, show, have become uh, more and more morose as well. So why do people deny progress? One answer from cognitive psychology depends on an interaction between a feature of cognition and a feature of the news. 
Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman have shown that uh, we intuitively estimate probability and risk with a, a shortcut called the availability heuristic. Namely, we judge something to be probable if we can easily recall examples from memory, images, anecdotes, uh, narratives. Well, if you combine that with the nature of the news, the news is about stuff that happens. It's not about stuff that, that doesn't happen. Uh, you never see a journalist um, saying, I'm reporting live from a country that is not at war, or a city that has not been struck by terrorists, or a school that has not been shot up. You also don't get news about things that happen uh, slowly. Uh, bad things can happen in an instant, in a an explosion, a burst of gunfire, but improvements aren't built in a day. And as uh, the economist Max Roser pointed out, the newspapers could have run the headline, 138,000 people escaped from extreme poverty yesterday, every day for the last 25 years. But they haven't because there was never a particular Thursday in October in which it happened all of a sudden. You combine these and you get the impression that the world is getting more dangerous and always has been. There's also a quirk of our psychology known as the negativity bias, that bad is stronger than good. We think and feel about uh, bad events and losses more than good events, especially recent bad events. With the passage of time, the um, negative emotional coloring of memories tends to fade. Uh, hence the uh, observation by Franklin Pierce Adams that nothing is responsible for the good old days, more responsible for the good old days than a bad memory. There's also a, a, a kind of market in uh, prophecies of doom. Because of the negativity bias, we not only uh, linger on bad events, but there, it creates an opening for professional uh, doomsayers and prophets to perhaps remind us of dangers we may have overlooked. As uh, the uh, writer uh, Morgan Housel has pointed out, pessimists sound like they're trying to help you. Optimists sound like they're trying to sell you something. And finally, there's some status competition among elites. A modern society consists of a number of professional guilds, uh, academics, politicians, business people, the, the military, the, the uh, religious establishment, who all have different responsibilities for making the society run, and all of whom compete for uh, prestige and esteem. So to complain about modern society is a backhanded way of putting down your rivals. It's a way for academics to disparage business people, business people to disparage politicians, politicians who are running for office to disparage uh, incumbents, and so on. As Thomas Hobbes put it in the 17th century, competition of praise inclineth to a reverence of antiquity, for men can contend with the living, not with the dead. Let me end with three questions about uh, progress and enlightenment. Uh, many people wonder whether uh, it's good to be pessimistic, to rake the muck, speak truth to power, afflict the comfortable. And I, I think the answer has to be no. It's good to be accurate, uh, to certainly be aware of problems and suffering and injustice where they occur, but also to be aware of how they can be reduced, because there are dangers of thoughtless, uh, data-free pessimism. Among them are fatalism. Why uh, waste time and money on a hopeless cause? Why throw good money after bad? Why throw money down a rat hole? Uh, if we're uh, doomed, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's have a good time uh, while we can. It can also open the door to radicalism. If every 
part of society is in deepening crisis, it was, the answer would seem to be to raise the institutions to the ground in the hope that something, anything, that rises from the rubble will be better, and hence to welcome uh, calls to smash the machine, drain the swamp, burn the empire to the ground, or to empower politicians who promise only I can fix it. <laughs> Uh, is progress inevitable? Does progress mean that everything gets better for everyone, everywhere, all the time? Well, no, that would be magic, and progress is not magic. Progress is uh, using knowledge to solve problems. And problems are inevitable. Solutions create new problems which uh, have to be solved in their turn. Also, we can always be blindsided by nasty surprises, and I have shown you a number of them, including the world wars, the 1960s crime boom, uh, AIDS in Africa, and the current opioid epidemic. There are also severe global challenges, uh, in, uh, foremost among them being climate change and nuclear weapons, which I think that we should uh, see as uh, unsolved problems, but ones that are solvable if we choose to solve them, rather than apocalypses in waiting. Climate change can be addressed through decarbonization via carbon pricing and the development of low, zero, and negative carbon technologies. Denuclearization can be achieved via international uh, stability and a robust international community and programs of arms reduction. And just a uh, couple of indications that these are not um, uh, naive aspirations, but, but may be feasible, come from uh, uh, a couple of ongoing trends. One of them is that there is a natural, uh, well, I shouldn't call it natural, there is an arc of uh, decarbonization that advanced economies follow as they climb an energy ladder from wood to coal to uh, petroleum to natural gas to technologies that include photovoltaics, nuclear, and uh, hydro. Here you see that the UK, after drastically increasing the amount of CO2 emissions per dollar of GDP through the use of coal during the Industrial Revolution, peaked around 1900 and has been falling. The US peaked in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, China uh, literally went off the charts. You can't even, I actually truncated it so it fit in this graph because of Mao's harebrained schemes of backyard smelters, which had enormous emissions of CO2 with zero economic uh, output. Uh, but that uh, has come down, and uh, India has also peaked. Here you see the trajectory for the world as a whole. Now, this does not mean that uh, with business as usual, the risk of uh, catastrophic climate change has been averted. Those numbers uh, have to be brought down to uh, zero. But what the, this graph shows is that modern economies are not uh, inherently tied to flaming carbon. Uh, also, few people realize that the world's stockpile of nuclear weapons has been reduced by 85% since its peak during the, uh, the Cold War in the mid-1980s. Indeed, almost 10% of American electricity comes from nuclear power from decommissioned weapons, mostly Soviet. More generally, progress is not a mystical force. It depends on embracing the ideals of the Enlightenment, namely applying reason and science to enhance human flourishing. If we continue to do that, we can expect continuing progress. And if we uh, don't, we, we uh, can't. Final question, does the Enlightenment go against human nature, as some critics from, uh, with a, a religious commitment uh, insist? Is humanism arid, tepid, flattened? 
Is the conquest of disease, famine, poverty, violence, and ignorance boring? Do people need to believe in magic, a father in the sky, a strong chief to protect the tribe, myths of heroic ancestors? Well, I don't think so. Uh, for one thing, secular liberal democracies are the happiest and healthiest places on Earth, probably in the history of our species. And they're the top destination of people who vote with their feet. And I dare say that applying knowledge and sympathy to enhance human flourishing is heroic, glorious, and spiritual. Thank you very much. And do we have a Q&A built into the, the program? Yes, well, I'll, I'll assume yes. So I think that was the first hand that popped up. Hi, thank you so much for your, your talk here. So you mentioned the importance of humanism, not just for humans, but also for sentient beings. And it seems to me, and also to many uh, animal psychologists, that there, there seems to be no reason for us to think that cows and pigs are less capable of suffering than human beings are. And in fact, Richard Dawkins has said there's reason to think that they are capable of more suffering. So with the fact that humans, as they progress, are also more likely to consume animal products, and with the fact that currently 60 billion animals a year uh, are killed in that process, do you think that is a legitimate reason to uh, feel uh, pessimistic about progress in general? Yes, if you... If you um uh, include animal suffering, then um, there are a, there's been a huge increase in the number of lives that have been brought into existence only to, to lead an unhappy experience. Um, certain, uh, and in sheer number, the fact that uh, more and more people can afford meat, which used to be a luxury for the rich, uh, has come at the expense. Uh, I mean, that, that benefit to, to Homo sapiens has come at the expense of lots and lots of chickens. Uh, there's, um, on the other hand, the uh, explicit moral commitment to reduce animal suffering uh, has increased. It, it's fighting against the sheer burgeoning of the number of uh, animals. Uh, a salient example is in um, close to my own home in, in um, scientific research involving animals, which when I was a student, and I, I did do research on animals, there's pretty much no restriction. You could do anything you want, and, and um, no, one, no one was looking. Uh, since then, it, very quickly, there was a, a pretty draconian regime of protection of the interests of animals in uh, scientific research. Uh, a number of states have imposed restrictions on things like the size of cages and, uh, and other, other uh, cruel treatments. Uh, and I suspect that those will increase. Probably the most, if we hope for dramatic reductions of the uh, total amount of suffering of non-human creatures that might come from uh, cultured meat, from a, a technology that allows us to enjoy the, the taste of animal flesh without any uh, sentient um, being coming into existence to provide us with it. But yes, that would be an, uh, certainly a, at best an incomplete uh, component of the story of progress. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm going to sleep much better tonight um, for having been here. Since I heard about your book, I've been thinking about two groups of people. One, people who see progress but feel that it has passed them by. Two, people who are less responsive to data and facts and science and reason and more responsive to narrative, emotion. 
both groups of people have been in the news a lot lately. So you're saying we can't just let the Enlightenment coast. We've got to actively uh, work for it. How do I talk to those two groups of people? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I don't, certainly don't, would not consider myself any, to have any expertise in, in messaging, in persuasion, in kind of the dark arts of changing minds, let alone culture, uh, you know, how to loose viral memes on the world. Um, so I, my, my messaging is really more directed at like, people like the ones in the, in the room, the elites, the, uh, the, the people who care about arguments, um, and uh, so I, I've made a case which I think needs to be made since so many uh, elites, so many intellectuals, and by elites I include professionals, news readers, who just have the wrong idea of which way our society is going. And uh, when, when you have almost everyone thinking that the world is getting worse at a time when it's getting better, I think at least a step in the right direction is to convince the, the, you know, the, the, the salient people, the opinion makers, the, uh, the talking heads, to at least get the get the sign right, uh, to, to, to know which way the world is going, and how that proliferates down to everyone else um, is, is uh, sort of less, less clear to me anyway. But um, for even for people who believe in, who, who are swayed by narrative as opposed to reason, reason can sometimes infect narratives. Um, we, for all the irrationality that has concerned many of us, there are entire categories of belief that people no longer uh, take seriously. People don't believe in, in miasmas and uh, unicorns and human sacrifice, uh, the uh, uh, innate evil of races marrying each other, the in inherent inferiority of uh, races such as African-Americans, beliefs that were pretty commonplace, uh, even in the lifetimes of some people in this room that have kind of fallen off, uh, the, the idea that women should uh, return to their traditional roles. Uh, so progress in directions that I think most of us would consider progress can uh, kind of proliferate from elite, elites uh, outward. And whether that will happen in the case of just the overall direction of society, I, I can't prophecy, but, uh, but at least there's that possibility. We also know that skilled political communicators can convey a, uh, a confidence in the, in the way that, that, that society is going. Um, that was certainly uh, true of um, Ronald Reagan, whether or not you agree with his particular policies, but he uh, uh, campaigned on um, and, and was elected twice on optimism. Bill Clinton, uh, his campaign song was Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. He was elected twice. Barack Obama was considered, uh, in fact, many of the uh, points that I've made in this lecture were made uh, in, in very similar language by Obama, who said, for example, if you were to pick a time in history to be born and you didn't know what race, what gender, uh, you'd pick now. Um, I don't think our current president would say that, for example. Um, so, it, and, uh, so it is possible for messages to proliferate that, that uh, are constructive, um, but I'm probably not the person to originate them. Thanks. Yes, in the back row. You've got a highly negative view of the mass media in your presentation, and I'm wondering to what extent you are generalizing about all of mass media. Two exceptions that come to mind are in authoritarian countries, like in Russia, Putin has more than an 80% approval rating, and in 
Turkey, a similar situation, or local uh, governments in the United States, jurisdictions. Local media tends to be highly boosterous, boosterous in the United States, very different than the national media. Um, and, um, you know, tends to be a monopoly media with uh, this positive view. So those two, two exceptions, would you want to qualify your media analysis to democratic countries and primarily national competitive media, or would you go so far as to say this is a general principle of all mass media, local and in the undemocratic countries, areas where there's still a, a very large fraction of Earth's population lives? Uh, true of all media, although the graphs that I showed, the second curve was a worldwide sample, um, probably not local, I think probably all uh, national. So, and I don't know what weight um, countries with kind of captive or coerced media, uh, like Russia, um, add to those. So I, I, I can't recall now the exact mixture, um, but I suspect that they don't contribute much to that uh, declining curve. So I, I suspect that, that you are right. Yeah, and I should qualify uh, my, my remarks in that it's, um, I don't want to join in the chorus of denunciation of the mainstream media, because I think they're much better than most of the alternatives. Uh, but they're just that they're, and, and you're, you're right that local media, um, uh, I don't know if they're necessarily boosterous, but they certainly don't revel in uh, crisis as much as the national media do. And I think that may be because there is a kind of bleeding of, um, from elite media, from uh, commentators, op-ed columnists, to a, a big strand in our intellectual culture, including uh, universities, of, um, of, of uh, embracing general cultural decline. This has been a, um, a strand of intellectual culture since the 19th century with, with Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and Burkhardt and, uh, and the, in the 20th century, the existentialists, the um, critical theorists, then the postmodernists. There are lots and lots of intellectuals uh, who are committed to um, decline and deterioration, and I think they blend to the na national media because they, you know, they come from the same universities and so on. And you're right that that's less true at the uh, local level. So it's uh, when I um, it, when I criticize the, the media um, again, I don't want to um, say that that they're that in, in general they portray some. Uh, conspiratorial vision of the world that serves their interests. But I do think there is a part of the culture of journalism increasing, as we saw in that graph, that equates serious journalism with, uh, with bad news. Uh, one editor was even quoted as saying um, that uh, uh, good news isn't journalism, it's advertising. And I think there's been, I think, especially since the uh, uh, Watergate era, where the press kind of you know, took down Nixon, Yes, uh, a feeling that, that, that negative journalism can be a force for social uh, improvement, social good, a contrast to the days in which the press ignored JFK's um, uh, sexual uh, peccadilloes, wouldn't shoot FDR from the uh, chest down to try to hide the fact that he was a paraplegic, and that those naive, um, obsequious uh, state glorifying days are over and now we are all social critics. And that, that is good, it's better than, to, to a degree, it's better than a kind of a captive press in totalitarian countries by far. Uh, my point is just it can go too far, that if every problem is portrayed as a crisis, 
as uh, the end of this, the death of that, the dawn of a post-something era, the coming plague, the coming uh, pandemic, and so on, then it, the cumulative effect can be one that makes people fatalistic and cynical. So it's really more of a retuning than a, uh, an across-the-board uh, attack. <laughs> Professor Pinker, it's always a pleasure to have you speak at Cato. Um, and that talk was uh, particularly inspiring because all the good things were going up and all the bad things were going down. And I don't think you left too many rocks unturned uh, in, that, in that presentation. So, so thanks so much. And to me, it's really uh, an exposition of uh, the things that drive our work at Cato. We believe uh, so strongly that uh, the values of the Enlightenment and classical liberal values have played such an important role in human well-being. And I think uh, we're all part of this enterprise because we want to make sure, uh, as you suggested near the end, that progress isn't automatic. And we all want to live in a world where our kids and grandkids are, uh, are experience even higher highs on the good stuff and lower lows on the bad stuff. Uh, and I think that uh, it's just such a compelling story. And you're correct that uh, we need to tell it as frequently as we can. So thank you so much. And thank you all of you for being here. Uh, Gene, thank you for, for making this event possible. Uh, and it's always uh, very proud for us to be able to, uh, to commemorate Joe and his association with, with Cato. And again, thank you for all the Cato sponsors who are here tonight. Uh, we're so appreciative of the, the, uh, the partnership that we have with you and uh, the critical role that, that you play in making our mission possible. So thank you so much. We're gonna have a reception uh, out in the Winter Garden, right out here on the first floor. And because of the, uh, the crowd you drew, there'll be uh, some overflow uh, down the spiral staircase. So I uh, look forward to seeing everyone out there. Thank you so much. <laughs>